Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what the radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, HS2 and CO2. Why are so many environmentalists opposed to England's proposed new high-speed railway? At a time when the UK is looking to dramatically reduce its carbon footprint, the idea of a high-tech train that would slash journey times between London, Birmingham, Manchester and Leeds seems like a no-brainer. It promises to take traffic off the road, reduce overcrowding on other rail networks and, in the words of the HS2 website, put Britain on track to a net zero carbon future. So why, from the earliest days of the project, have some of its most vocal opponents been people who would be proud to call themselves Green, including prominent members of the Green Party, like Natalie Bennett, who still wants it scrapped? It's not too late to stop HS2. It is possible to do that, and the country will be better off if we do. We'll hear more from Natalie Bennett later. I've also been out in the countryside to a site where locals say HS2 has wrought devastation. It just breaks my heart, and uh, and it, it, it just devastates me, and I'm not the only person that's, that's affected that way. I mean, it's traumatised me. I, I avoid this area. I, I don't often come this way anymore. Plus, Byline Times writer Stephen Delahunty on claims that ministers have misled the public about the true cost of HS2. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast only exists thanks to the generosity of subscribers to the Byline Times. For £36 a year, you get a monthly newspaper, you help fund a brilliant news-breaking website and this pod. So do subscribe if you can. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. More of us than ever are using the railway in Britain. Demand for rail travel has more than doubled in the past 20 years, and passenger numbers continue to grow. A clip from one of several promo films created to promote High Speed 2, the Y-shaped rail network connecting Manchester and Leeds to London via Birmingham. Because trains would have their own dedicated track and wouldn't have to compete with other services, journey times would dramatically improve. You'd be able to get from London to Birmingham in just 52 minutes, saving half an hour on the current best journey time. A full hour would be cut on the trip between Manchester and the capital. Leeds to Birmingham would take just 49 minutes instead of the current two hours. But despite its name, High Speed 2 isn't just about how quickly you can get from A to B. It's also a key part of the government's strategy to cut the UK's carbon emissions, an issue that has become all the more pressing since the recent IPCC report on climate change. HS2 reckon they've got it covered. The UK has committed to end its contribution to climate change by becoming a net zero carbon economy by 2050. The largest contributor to carbon emissions in the UK is transport. So it's important to change the way we travel. Of all the ways to transport large numbers of people around Britain, trains are the lowest carbon option by far. HS2 will carry over 300,000 people every day. It will free up space in our existing network for more commuter and regional trains to carry more people and will create space for more freight to travel by rail rather than lorries. Our stations will connect with walking, cycling and public transport routes, enabling low-carbon travel across the country. 
So, faster journey times on a form of transport that would help fight climate change. From an environmental point of view, what's not to like? Well, what's remarkable is that HS2 is officially opposed by only one mainstream party in England and Wales, the Greens. We'll hear from Green peer Natalie Bennett shortly. But I wanted to see firsthand the impact of building HS2. So I've been to a site a few miles outside Leamington Spa in Warwickshire, where a vast area of woodland has been cleared for the new train. Local residents Victoria and Charlotte gave me a guided tour. We're on the Offchurch Greenway and we've walked down that path. It's a disused railway line actually and it's a beautiful covered walkway surrounded by high, tall, um, mature trees, um, hedgerows uh, and lots of understory as well. And it's just a beautiful area to walk and people, many people walk, ride, cycle etc along here. Um, however, the Greenway has recently, or in the last 12 months, been cut in half because HS2 crosses the Greenway. And eventually there will be some sort of bridge put over it so that people can continue to, to use the whole route. But actually what they've done is taken away something like 400 metres of that area, which has completely been decimated, all undergrowth, uh, wildlife, trees, hedges, etc. Everything has gone. And we know just by the difference in the sound, the bird life, etc. in this area, how that has impacted. It's not just the birds uh, and the invertebrates. Obviously, there's larger mammals and things that you don't so readily see, and things like bats. And this is just multiplied along this route, the little ecosystems that have existed along here, and, and many of which have now been destroyed. And it isn't just the fact that these areas have been lost, but what is then left is fragmented. So um, if, you, if you imagine, um, you know, people say, well, it doesn't matter, you've still got that woodland, you've still got this. If I went into the National Gallery and I cut out a chunk of each masterpiece or cut a corner off or cut a bit out in the middle, etc., they wouldn't be quite the same anymore. They wouldn't really represent what they're supposed to. They wouldn't really be the masterpiece they were. And what we're doing is fragmenting our wildlife in such a way that it makes it much harder for it to exist and survive and even for example in the woods behind me we're not far we've just looked over the horizon to Cubbington Woods and that wood has been cut in half and I know because I've been into that wood this year how much that ecosystem has changed how much drier the woodland is because it's cut in half so those two areas are now exposed and much much drier and that is already changing what is existing in that woodland system hundreds and hundreds of years of ecosystem you can't put that back with the mitigation that HS2 is claiming that it's doing you simply can't and then having taken all this out this is fundamentally adding to climate change it's no good pointing to China and Russia and India we are just as bad and now, with COVID, they've had so many opportunities to stop. It has to stop because, like Charlotte said, people have realised they don't. They can work from home, which is how we need to be changing. We need to be building up communities. People don't want to be travelling to cities so much. And you're very keen, both of you, to stress to me that although you do live in the local area, your residents mm. hereabouts, and you come to support mm. the camp... Yeah, yeah this is not 
a NIMBY argument? Not, not at all, not at all. I, I, I mean, it, it upsets me to see what's happening in our country anywhere, and it upsets me to see what's happening across the world, because this is not an isolated incident. Obviously, it, it, it personally affects me deeply, because many areas that I've literally known since I was a child have been completely decimated. In fact, I'd say dozens of them, because I just knew this area like the back of my hand, to the point that I knew there was a, I don't know, a ditch on that verge. I used to drum, jump on a pony I rode, you know, it, it just, I just knew it so well, and I've seen it completely, completely change. So that itself is, is very upsetting, but even just to see what's happening, obviously, uh, across the world it is equally bad but this is kind of our Amazon really you know it is, it's all very well sort of criticising what's going on in places like Brazil but actually we, we are just as responsible and you can see the changes because all the trees that are being removed is adding to the wind as well yeah, and flooding and flooding and the farmers crops are no longer going to be protected because the hedgerows have gone as well. And then on top of that, they're building the concrete compounds. And then on top of that, they're digging up aggregate and they're building temporary, temporary roads sometimes. And then the cement factories and the bentonite factories. We had the notice to proceed that was given in middle, middle of April last year, 2020. And, and what is so disappointing is the fact that there are quite a few dynamics that have changed to this project and obviously the circumstantial situation within our country as we went into lockdown and just gone into lockdown and, and really uh, any business, if you look at our country as a business, any business, when things change as they do in our own lives, you review, you change your plan, you adjust and adapt and that didn't happen. And had they just left it for six months and postponed the notice to proceed and postponed the starting of the building to, to the, say, you know, say October last year, when they had a clearer idea of how things might change and how they might adapt, that, that could have had a massive you know, ramifications for our countryside and our environment. But, but they haven't. And, and actually the speed of the railway, for example, has reduced. Mm. So by doing that, it means that it doesn't have to go straight. It's not that as important. And if you don't have to go straight, you can actually go around things like woodlands. And that hasn't happened. So that is another massive disappointment, is that people haven't sort of been thinking on their feet and proactively as to what we can do. And we see that in so many projects, not just HS2, that the environment is not being put first. In fact, it's barely on the list. And the environment has to be top of the agenda. How would you describe this landscape, which you have known for many years in your life? When I come through this way now, I, I, I say, here we go, it's no man's land. That's what it is to me. It, it just breaks my heart and, uh, and it, it, it just devastates me. And I'm not the only person that's, that's affected that way. I mean, it's traumatised me. I, I avoid this area. I, I don't often come this way anymore. It, it's really, really it impacts on people. And it's not just me or a couple of people. It's hundreds and hundreds of people. Nice. I, so many people speak to us about it. Mm. Um, it has a massive impact. But, yeah. And, and it's it, the lives that have been destroyed by people because their properties have been taken, their businesses and their homes mm. and the farmland. The farmland is the most, one of the most fundamental mm. things as well because with this climate emergency, this is not going to get any better. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And we should be growing crops here. Mm. We should stop flying in all the goods that we do but right now, the, the thing with the governments, it's so short-sighted. 
I was talking to somebody uh, last week who works in agriculture and has all his life, for, for, you know, just back, he's nearly, nearly 16, he's, he's been in agriculture all his life. Uh, and he, I, was, I didn't bring the subject up, but he said to me, uh, HS2 is the biggest environmental disaster this country has ever seen. He was saying how very different it's been to work the land the last few years, how it's becoming increasingly difficult to grow crops. And we were talking about what the impacts will be in the future here. Uh, we may not be seeing the famines that you see in Africa, but there will be no doubt that food and water will be things that will be potentially in short supply, even in our country. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where the conversation came from. And that's when he said, you know, he'd seen some of the impacts, the carbon that's being released, the soil that's essentially being killed. And yeah, he said it, it is the, the biggest environmental disaster, HS2 is the biggest environmental disaster this country's ever seen. And, and, and he's absolutely right, without a doubt. And, and obviously it's, it's still continuing. Charlotte and Victoria. My thanks to them and also to Fives and Venus, who I met at the nearby Welsh Road protest camp, one of several that have sprung up along the route. Now HS2 says it's creating a green corridor to run alongside the railway, planting new woodlands, creating new ponds, grasslands and meadows. Those claims didn't impress voters in Chesham and Amersham though, where opposition to the creation of two tunnels through the Chiltern Hills was credited with helping Liberal Democrat candidate Sarah Green secure a shock by-election victory in a traditionally safe Tory seat, even though the Lib Dems support HS2. Opposition to the scheme seems to be growing nationally too. A petition against the railway attracted more than 150,000 signatures, forcing a parliamentary debate on September the 13th. Green Party peer Natalie Bennett has been a vocal opponent of HS2 since its inception. HS2 is the wrong project in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Green Party is, of course, very passionately supportive of rail travel and opposed to any expansion of airports and roads. But what the HS2 does, and this is something I was just counting back, I've been saying this for more than a decade, HS2 focuses money, people and resources even more on London, which is the last thing that the country needs. HS2 was designed for speed, even though that's not really what it's delivering in terms of people's travel times. And that straight line design for speed design means that it's slicing through the countryside, slicing through ancient woodland, cutting a swathe of destruction utterly unnecessarily. And we also have to really think about where we are now in terms of the climate emergency, the nature crisis. We're not talking about business as usual with added technology. We are a highly mobile society. Obviously, COVID has had an impact on that. Many more people are and will continue to work from home. But we cannot assume that we're going to keep moving more people around more often and indeed moving much more stuff around more often. You can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And HS2 is very much a growth project. At the same time, though, there is a phrase, isn't there? Don't let the best be the enemy of the good and people will say look if you're committed to encouraging more rail travel hs2 argues that they will shift freight off the roads onto rail that hs2 will replace a lot of flights that currently take place between different parts of the uk and they'll be part of a a bigger project to encourage 
what they describe as a modal shift so that we are traveling much more by train and by other forms of transport rather than by road. So even if it's not perfect, even if it comes at a substantial price both to the environment and to the exchequer, isn't that something that Greens should be supporting? Well, I think, first of all, let's pick up that flight claim, which simply doesn't add up on two grounds. One ground being that very few people fly from Birmingham to London and even fewer people, if any, fly from Crewe to London. On HS2's own figures, the modal shift from flight is 1% of journeys. It's not going to make a big difference. It's now perfectly possible to get from Edinburgh and Glasgow to London in a reasonable time frame. There's a sleeper train I'm personally very passionate about, and this is not going to make a significant difference. We're also talking about getting to Birmingham somewhere around about 2030, maybe the full line 2040. We're in a climate emergency. We need urgent action. The resources need to be being put into the journeys that very many people make in terms of local cross-country journeys. But the second point is, in terms of modal shift, is that HS2 is built on the assumption that there's going to be more and more people travelling more and more. That has also really huge implications in terms of the quality of our life. It's like many things in terms of climate action. The UK has, this is pre-COVID, doubled the average commuting time as the rest of Europe. The UK also has the longest working hours in Europe. The UK also has one of the highest rates of relationship breakdown in Europe. If people can work from home on the telecoms instrument of your choice and they're there to tuck the kids up, read them a bedtime story and then you know, perhaps have um, dinner with their spouse, have a decent life. HS2 is built on the idea that we'll keep long working hours, long travelling time, long commuting time. We need a different kind of model of society. So you're saying not only are we not looking for business as usual with added technology, you're not really looking at business as usual at all. Exactly. We're talking about, there's a phrase, it's unfortunately a sort of very technical sounding phrase, but in the uh, the climate community, people talk about co-benefits. And that means there's so many things that we do in climate action. Working from home, not commuting long distances, you know, whether you're driving or whether you're taking, you know, a long distance train journey, you know, to go to a meeting, say, you know, perhaps you're on the way to Europe. If you don't take that journey, that cuts carbon emissions. But it also means that you actually have a better quality of life. You actually spend much less time in your working day. We all know that travel is a wearying kind of thing. It takes it out of you. If you can work from home, as we've seen through the COVID pandemic, people are recognising that this can give them a much better quality of life, a much better work-life balance. And that also means people not driving to the train station. That's air pollution, all of those issues that we raise. And of course, we've got an obesity pandemic, real health problems. If people are walking and cycling more in their local communities, the streets are less congested. All of these benefits accrue from a different kind of life. These are the co-benefits of climate action, not continuing as we are, which we know we can't do anyway. Can we not have co-benefits, though, from HS2? HS2 not only does make it more possible to get from London, where sadly the wealth of the country is concentrated, to Birmingham, to Crewe, to Manchester, to Leeds, eventually to Scotland, enabling that wealth to be spread out. And doesn't it do it in a way that frees up the rest of the rail network, increases capacity across the rail network as a whole, allowing for greater possibilities for local rail networks to expand and develop. Surely that's got to be a desirable aim. It's two questions here. One is a question of timing and the other is the question of the resources. 
right, we're going to do all of this to get from London to Birmingham. Now, on the HS2 zone figures, 72% of the journeys will be people going into London. They talk about needing to build Crossrail 2 in London because of all of the people coming into London off HS2. That means a business person in Manchester, in Liverpool, going down to London to do business and heading home in the evening. What we want instead is that business person going over to Hull to do business with someone in Hull. What we want is not things going into London, but wealth spreading around the country. I mean, the government talks about the levelling up agenda. I much prefer a spreading out of prosperity. And that means instead of it naturally being that to do business, you go to London, to do business, you go across the country. And I can speak from bitter experience how incredibly difficult it is to go east-west across the country by train. HS2 does nothing for that. And if we look elsewhere around the country, people will remember a few years ago when Cornwall was cut off from the rest of the country by rail because the Victorian rail line on the coast got taken out by a storm. Now, there's an old closed decades ago train line through the middle of Cornwall, which isn't vulnerable to the weather, to the climate change in the same kind of way. Opening up that instead, linking up parts of the country not focused on London is got to be the absolutely key thing to say about this. And the other thing is the question of resources. We have a really limited capacity in our construction sector. I was actually talking more on the building side, but talking to the Federation of Master Builders and other elements of the construction industry, and they were saying, we need 100,000 workers, we don't know where we're going to find them from. While all of the energy and the skills and the people are working on HS2, they're not working on restoring that link in Cornwall, they're not working on the line between Hull and Manchester. If we were focusing on those other links, the links that are not centred on London, then we'd be improving those capacity right now. Would you not accept, though, that the rail network does need increased capacity and that HS2 is one way of achieving that? It does increase capacity, undoubtedly. What I'm arguing is there are many other better ways to do it, both far less costly and far less environmentally destructive and crucially not focused on London. This is the problem. Even the government with its whole levelling up agenda acknowledges that there is a problem with the economic focus on London. We need to get away from that as a matter of great urgency. So we're building a train line to London and we're saying, well, you know, that means in a decade or two things will be better in other places. It's utterly the wrong way around. On Byline Times, we've had a number of stories, most recently a story by Stephen Delahunty, suggesting that the true cost of HS2 is not being made known either to the public or to MPs. And Stephen reported that Lord Barclay had written to the Cabinet Office calling for an investigation, arguing that ministers and officials at the Department of Transport had broken the ministerial code by misleading Parliament over the true cost of HS2? I think we have a huge problem in the UK. We are really in our austerity hollowed out government. You know, we've seen government departments slashed and slashed and slashed in terms of the number of officials and the experience of those officials. We have a huge problem with the place in our politics of large multinational companies, including construction companies. We've seen a lot of focus on the housing sector. I think there were some figures showing that a quarter of the Tory government's funding comes from developers. We really lack the democratic controls in our system. We do not have a functional modern government. 
we don't have a democratic government. You know, it's worth noting that Boris Johnson got 100% of the power with the backing of 44% of the people who voted in 2019. So we have a system that really cannot manage projects like HS2 that cannot keep control of these giant contractors. We simply don't have the government structures that can manage it. And I think those figures that you were just citing are very much evidence of that. The Infrastructure Projects Authority, which is the UK's official body for monitoring major projects like this, has said that Phase 2B of HS2, which would be the line going north from Crewe to Manchester and Leeds, is, and I quote, unachievable. They've given it a red rating. They've also given an amber stroke red rating for the line between London and Birmingham, suggesting that successful delivery is in doubt. Now, given the IPA is casting effectively doubt on the entire project, why do you think the government is so keen to proceed? We were talking about the influence of big construction companies over our politics, particularly over the Conservative Party. We were talking about the fact that we don't really have the democratic accountability structures. And I think when we look at the costs of HS2, you know, I can speak from being on the ground. I joined Caroline Culver, who was our candidate in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, to visit Jones Hill Wood back in June. There is very strong local resistance national resistance. HS2 doesn't have the consent of the country. So this is a project which is never going to deliver on anything like its promises. There is a risk that will continue to throw good money after bad. It might get to Birmingham. I think there's very little likelihood, as that oversight body is saying, that it'll get further than that. I recollect many years ago, the then head of Crossrail talking about how with the prospect of Boris Johnson becoming mayor, he was digging as many holes in the ground and basically creating as much mess as possible so it would be impossible to stop the project. That's a tactic that's well known in infrastructure circles. But what we have to do at this point now, and of course on September 13, there's going to be a debate in Parliament forced by the level of public opposition to HS2, we have to say Yes, we've caused a great deal of damage. We've spent a great deal of money already with very little to show for it. But that doesn't mean we should keep throwing good money after bad. It's not too late to stop HS2. It is possible to do that. And the country will be better off if we do. Mm. I just wonder about the political fallout of that, though. I live in Birmingham, which often feels that it is neglected by the Westminster government. We know that the government has a levelling up agenda for the so-called Red Wall constituencies in the Midlands and the north of England. So the message to Leeds, to Crewe, to Manchester and to my own city, if HS2 doesn't go ahead, might well be perceived as being, actually, you know what, we're happy to throw money at London, but we don't care about you. I mean, what is very clear and obvious from many different quarters is we have a climate emergency. We're the chair of the COP26 climate talks, and we don't have decent plans for heat and buildings, for local transport, for food growing, for agriculture. What the government needs to do is to deliver on its what it calls the living up agenda is to actually have decent plans for the prosperity of the whole country. HS2 doesn't do that. The political answer to that, and I'm not going to offer prescriptions for the Tory government, but we certainly need this from a climate level, and we also need it from a level of communities up and down the land suffering with such enormous levels of poverty and inequality, is we need to invest in home energy efficiency, in insulation. That means 
every community in the land and particularly the north and the poorer areas of the country tend to have much poorer housing. There's more needed there to insulate homes, to get homes up to a decent standard. That means jobs, small business opportunities. It means if we start to think about bringing much more food production back to the UK, vegetables and fruit, that's many more jobs, many more small business opportunities. Most people now don't have a decent bus service. Let's put money into buses in northern cities, improving tram lines, local transport that helps people live their lives. I mean, I was in Doncaster not long before COVID, hearing a woman in her 80s And she'd fallen over because she had to walk up an enormously steep hill to get to the bus because there wasn't a bus anywhere near her house anymore. That's the practical reality in so many northern communities. You know, HS2 is of absolutely no relevance to that woman's life. A decent local bus that runs regularly, that gets reasonably close to her house. That's what people really need to improve their lives. Natalie Bennett, who sits in the House of Lords for the Green Party. Aside from the question marks that have been raised about the environmental benefits of HS2, there is also the cost. Originally mooted at around £32 billion, it's now more than trebled to £106 billion, according to the independent OKV report commissioned by the government. Labour peer Tony Barclay was deputy chair of that review, but quit after disagreeing with its findings. He's called for an investigation by the Cabinet's office, arguing that ministers misled Parliament over the true costings of the scheme. He accuses them of deception and possible fraud. This was an exclusive story for Byline Times, reported by Stephen Delahunty. What did Stephen himself make of what Lord Barclay had said? It comes across as someone who is at the end of his tether. On his own website, he's published all his own correspondence, which we included some of in the article. But as far back as the last five, six years, he's been constantly raising himself with whoever, you know, the transport minister was at the time. And in this case, he escalated it to the cabinet office because he feels like the point he's raised and what he's trying to say is just being completely ignored. So yeah, it seems like someone who's at the end of his tether, quite a strongly worded letter in response to the fact that he did not get a reply to a previous letter where he raises allegations of ministers and civil servants being misleading in public office. Yeah, I mean, it's more than just saying the costs are going over and above what they were originally anticipated to be. I think people knew when the original 30-odd million pound budget was mooted for this scheme, it was never going to be within that cost envelope, as they say. But this is specifically about ministers knowing and officials knowing that it would bust that limit and busting later limits, but continuing to tell Parliament that the budget was the budget and that the scheme wasn't going to go over budget. Yeah, we had quite a sort of long chat about it. He does actually use the word deception at one point, and he feels like there's a very clear timeline of ministers being not just purposely misleading, but being actually deceptive. I'd say that's quite strong words for someone involved in government for a long time. I don't think that is something he would accuse ministers and, you know, maybe former colleagues of lightly. He even says deception and possibly even fraud, which, again, is quite strong words for someone in his position. He's a strange person, isn't he, to have been deputy chair of Boris Johnson's review into HS2, isn't he? I mean, he's a Labour peer for one thing. I'm guessing he was chosen because the review could demonstrate that it was being even-handed and that it was non-partisan. 
but he's clearly massively engaged engage with this now and turned from reviewer to what the government would see as troublemaker. Yeah, it would seem like from the timeline that maybe he was only put on the review board to give the perception of balance. He resigned his role as deputy chair and has slammed the report in a number of ways, saying it was completely dishonest. Round about that time was when his own independent review was underway, which comes to almost a complete opposite conclusion. So it does seem like he was a strange person to for the government to get involved as part of the review in the first place. Yeah, I'm sure they're reg- yeah. <laughs> regretting it now. But there was a response, wasn't there, from the Department of Transport? Again, this was another thing Berkeley said, was that he was disappointed that the Cabinet Office had referred his letter to the Department of Transport for comment because the civil servant that responds is one of the people at the time and events who was making some of the statements he considers to be misleading. So I guess they just basically denied his point about phase one and phase two being misleading from the start they just you know completely deny those allegations and his own independent report he put the cost of the project at 142 billion which is depending where you take the start and estimate from of this project which goes back nearly a decade now is maybe at least three times higher than than any original estimate for probably more like five or six times the department for transport in part blames the previous government and tries to move it on from when Boris Johnson ordered the review and then begins from a position of, well, the 80-odd billion figure that came out of the OKB review is the position we're moving on from now. Again, they're very clever in the word, and because if you go through the timeline of the events, they repeatedly say that the budget is this, while knowingly looking into alternatives. So I think they've been very clever with the word. They actually said, we did not say it would be on budget. We just said the budget would be this, which is, um, you know, you, know, you, have, you, have, to, you have to laugh. Yes, Minister. You'd probably just lose your mind. I think you have to laugh. In this episode, we've heard from environmentalists, green campaigners and politicians who say that the green credentials of HS2 don't stack up. The timescale, the original timescale proposed for HS2 doesn't stack up. Clearly, the original costs don't stack up. And there's a suggestion that once the first phase to Birmingham is built, if that's built, that will be the end of high speed two. Can you, based on your research into this area, foresee high speed two ever It's a very good question. I feel like it's become such a sort of contentious vanity project for the government that for them to not get a little bit of it built, the the fallout from that would be a disaster as far as infrastructure projects go. It wouldn't surprise me at all if it did just get to Birmingham and then the rest of it got scrapped. Stephen Delahunty. And you can read more great stories by top journalists like Stephen at bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, which has extra content that you can't read on the website, pay for bylinetimes.com and for this podcast. So don't delay. Do subscribe. Get more details on a subscription at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening. See you next time.